As much of the country is recovering from record-breaking cold and winter storms, more of us than usual might be reflecting on how we feel during the winter. At least, that's one tip we'll be discussing in today's episode of It's Probably Not Rocket Science, a University of New Mexico podcast that aims to uncomplicate complex topics. I'm your host, Carly Bowling, and today we're talking about seasonal depression, what it is, how to cope, and when to seek help with Dr. Christina Sauer from the University of New Mexico Health Sciences Center. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Dr. Sauer. Before we get started, can you tell me a little bit about what you do at UNM Health? Yeah, definitely. Sure. So yeah, I'm Christina Sauer. I'm in the Department of Psychiatry. At this point, I'm an associate professor here, and I have um, a couple roles. I'm the program director for the General Psychiatry Residency, and I also work as the co-director for the Office of Wellbeing here at UNM, which is kind of bigger school of medicine office. Clinically, I do, I work in a few homes, so to speak. So I work on the child inpatient, one of the child inpatient units here at UNM. And then I also have a clinic outpatient taking care of individuals, both adults and children with eating disorders. Do a little bit of emergency psychiatry. So yeah, I really enjoy the opportunities to work in different spheres with people and have a nice mix of like direct clinical care, but then teaching and other administrative time too. Wow. It sounds like you do a little bit of everything. Yeah. It's been a good, one of the upsides of working in academia, having the flexibility, and then it's simultaneously balancing and keeping plates spinning simultaneously. I wanted to see if just to start, you could tell me the differences between what's often referred to as winter blues, kind of that general feeling of being down in the winter and seasonal affective disorder or seasonal depression. Yeah, that's a great question. It's similar to other mental health conditions where there are particular disorders that have a firmer set of diagnostic criteria and then kind of the spectrum of symptoms that people may think about or associate with the umbrella term, but um, it can just be a broader spectrum of things that people have that may not quite fit criteria for a specific disorder, but still fall within that, that territory. Yeah, so seasonal affective disorder is a formal disorder in our psychiatric diagnostic manual, and it really reflects a depth of substantial impact on mood, on energy, um, in general depressive symptoms that are associated with the change in seasons, and most commonly moving into the winter season, although it doesn't necessarily have to be winter for people. And then a lot of folks may think of other, what potentially could be more mild or less pervasive symptoms where they notice that they feel more tired in the winter. They notice that they're just quite not as excited or energetic about doing activities. And if it's not severe enough or if it doesn't come in the sort of whole picture of other symptoms, it may not meet criteria. Someone may not be experiencing seasonal affective disorder, but they still might have things that we think about as the seasonal blues or, yeah, just the the kind of difficulties that come along with the changes in light and seasons. What are some of the symptoms of seasonal affective disorder? Yeah, great question. So for seasonal affective disorder, there's some cardinal symptoms. So one can be a shift in mood state where people notice that they feel persistently more down or depressed or irritable. Um, Also can note with that changes in energy. So less energy, feeling more tired, perhaps sleeping more. 
And then also frequently changes in motivation or like interest in activities where they just don't feel quite as interested or quite as motivated to participate in things that they that they have before. Um, there can be some other symptoms along with that in terms of how well people like they feel that they can concentrate or focus or what their appetite looks like. But it's often the mood and the energy and motivation symptoms that people experience more intensely or might recognize more clearly. That makes sense. Loss of energy, lack of interest. Is seasonal affective disorder related to major depressive disorder? Yes, definitely. There are within the range of what we call depressive disorders, there are several different kinds. So major depressive disorder is one that's very common. Seasonal affective disorder is another. Um, there's other things like persistent depressive disorder. But yeah, there are some similarities. It's that you know major depressive disorder isn't triggered by um, the seasonal change, whereas seasonal affective disorder really carries that clear trigger and correlation with the, the time of year and and light particularly that happen. What months and what areas are worse for seasonal affective disorder? Yeah, so, and right, like in New Mexico, we definitely still see that people develop it. It's probably more prevalent in areas of the world that there's less light in general, for example, like Northern US, Canada, Northern Europe. Um, But it tends to be December, sort of like December through February when you see more of it start. Shorter days, again, sometimes times of the year that can be hard, but that December, January especially seems to be more, more intense. And that overlaps with some of the shorter, the shortest days of the year. So I had read that this condition varies by state with the most residents dealing with this, at least in the U.S., in Alaska, nearly 10%, I think I read, versus in Florida, the percentage was closer to around 2%. How prevalent is seasonal depression in New Mexico? That's a great question. And I would need to look at the most recent data. As you're saying, it's less prevalent here. Like the percentages are lower here than in other areas that it's darker, maybe between light and weather combined. Um, But yeah, I think it's also around 2 to 4% in New Mexico that annually meet criteria for seasonal affective disorder and then is as referred to referenced at the start, many more people that might feel like they have some seasonal blues, but it's not to the full extent of the disorder. Just a few more details for you about seasonal affective disorder. According to the American Psychiatry Association, about 5% of U.S. adults experience seasonal affective disorder every year, with rates being highest in areas of the country that have the least amount of sunlight and farthest from the equator. And likely many more people experience some symptoms, but not to the full extent of having the disorder. Those impacted typically experience symptoms for about 40% of the year, or nearly five months. The National Institute of Mental Health also makes clear that depression associated with SAD is not the same as stress and sadness associated with winter holidays, family visits, or schedule changes that might occur in the winter. What causes seasonal affective disorder? I know that obviously the changing of the seasons, but what is the actual mechanism? It's a good question and it's still being studied. And and one of the pieces that's a bit of a confounder is that there is, as mentioned, kind of this fall to winter onset of seasonal affective disorder, but for some people there's also the spring onset. And so it may, it may be a little different for some individuals. But one of the thoughts is that because as that 
transition to winter happens, especially here in the northern hemisphere where we have less light, that the biochemical hormonal process in our brain by which we make melatonin um, that's triggered by the transition to darkness or, you know, is really impacted by light exposure, that because we're having earlier setting of the sun and, you know, longer darkness that generally people's, the melatonin production is impacted in the winter. And for some people, they may be making more melatonin. So that may be part of what impacts how they feel. There's kind of other cascades of how melatonin interacts with other hormones and things, but um, that's one of the hypotheses that has been generated to date. And it probably is that, you know, some people are more vulnerable to it because of other genetic or environmental predispositions. What does the spring onset version of seasonal affective disorder look like? Yeah. So in terms of what triggers spring seasonal affective disorder, spring onset seasonal affective disorder, it's a good, it's a curious question because for some people, the springtime with more light can trigger a shift from being in more of a depressed state to more elevated. And people with bipolar, for example, sometimes the spring is a is a, a more at-risk time for them to, to move into a hypomanic or a manic episode. But spring season, a spring onset seasonal affective disorder, we still think about as as looking like what we see in the winter where they have more of the depressive symptoms. And again, that may be that some people are just more sensitive to the impact of light on melatonin and how it impacts their body. But for some, rather than it being like more dark is the contributing factor that for others, maybe having less melatonin and, and more light precipitates again, like a downward movement of their mood and energy. How can someone experiencing symptoms differentiate between seasonal affective disorder and more general depression? Most commonly, I think if you are able to ta- to track for yourself that, okay, there are shifts for me with the seasons. These are the different areas that I notice there are changes then that's more likely going to be something that is within the seasonal affective disorder range. Um, you know, if you're aware of the fact like, oh, I just feel like I don't want to do as much, but other things are kind of staying in a good space for you. Um, that's probably less severe symptoms. And as such, you know, things that maybe less intervention is, is needed. I really want to hone in on what people can do to help deal with seasonal depression, you know, whether it rises to a full diagnosis or not. What advice would you give to people? Yeah, it's a great question. So one I would say is that self-awareness, like building or refining um, the capacity to have self-awareness and and recognize what kind of symptoms you might be experiencing or how significant or how extensive they are. Because many people might realize like, oh, I just don't feel as good in the winter. And in turn, they're doing things like watching a lot more TV or eating more drinking more, things like that, but they aren't always necessarily as tuned into like, how am I feeling and how is this coming out in different, um, how my body's speaking, so to speak. So I think one is having the self-awareness and being able to track and have a sense of like, okay, what is shifting and how is that correlated with the seasons? For some people that can involve also like recall of, right, what do I recall from, you know, past couple of years? Seasonal affective disorder more commonly starts in the late teenage and early 20 years. So it's not as much something we see in kids and teens. 
but thinking back over time. So that self-awareness and recall. The other piece is that, you know, sometimes people feel like they need to be more dedicated to self-care routines or things that help them feel better in the winter or whatever season's more vulnerable for them. So that might be like making sure you set an opportunity to be active or exercise or that you're paying attention to your nutrition, um, that you're making sure you make time for social connections, like whatever the positive things are, that you're being more attentive to those when your body's in a more vulnerable state. And then, yeah, and then there can be other strategies that people look at, you know, ranging from like using light box therapy to making sure that they're up and about in daylight hours and getting sunlight exposure um, to more professional help in terms of like therapy or potentially medication opportunities. That makes sense. Sort of reflecting on previous years and checking in with yourself and then going from there. So at what point should someone seek help for this problem? In terms of thinking about like, do I need help or is this something that I can navigate on my own? A few things to look for would be how much impairment, like how difficult are the effects of the seasonal changes in your functioning? For some people, again, it might be that they don't, they just don't feel quite as energetic as they do in the summer, like things feel harder, but they're still able to do most of what they need to do. Um, Generally, they're kind of moving through and things are okay. But when people are having more impairment, like they're finding that they need to go to bed a lot earlier and they're missing more of their evening time or activities, if that's impacting work or school functioning, um, if they're feeling like the depression is just much more intense, they're feeling consistently down, lonely, depressed or irritable, that those all may be things that professional help could certainly benefit. And um, it may be reaching out for more kind of therapy counseling support to talk through what's going on and also determine, you know, are there other linkages? For example, many people who struggle around the holidays or may have lost loved ones and the holidays are hard, like that can be an additional impact that psychotherapy could help. Um, but also meeting, you know, with a medical professional to make sure there's not other medical issues going on that are contributing and or to look at medications like antidepressants that could be of help. Those are definitely some ways that professional intervention could be a benefit. So with the start of a new year, I think a lot of people are probably creating resolutions for how they can improve their health, both physically and mentally. What are some things that people might try to implement for better mental health this year? Great question. I think it can be helpful for people to go into the new year with intentions or like areas that they want to bring energy and focus to sometimes even the process of like setting particular goals or resolutions like that may work great for some people, but for others, if they feel like they're not achieving it, then they can get more down on themselves or kind of like, you know, less constructive um, path there. So, yeah, I think bringing the energy or the resolution of um, trying to like find ways to prioritize yourself and be aware of what's going on. Again, that self-awareness piece In our culture, it's so common that people have become acclimated to finding ways to distract or just be distanced from how they feel, right? Whether it's like social media scrolling or 
eating or substance use or whatever it might be that sometimes we found ways that, you know, our comfort is to go to things that feel better rather than sometimes sitting with how we're feeling and, you know, difficult feelings if they're there. So definitely a practice of self-awareness for some people that might be journaling for like five minutes a day. For some, it might be setting an intention that, you know, if you're feeling down, sad, mad, that you'll create a few moments for yourself to pause and then accordingly, right, and, and maybe as you're getting a better inventory of how you're doing, having the priority to create space. And again, it can be small changes, like even if it's kind of a 1% change every day, it goes a long way in totality. But making changes to, to prioritize what you need. And so if that's, you know, you need a little bit more movement than you've been doing, or you could benefit from eating more vegetables, a few more vegetables a week, or if it's that you would benefit for your family's sake and for your own to reach out to a counselor in terms of navigating complex, stressful situations that just like seeing that as a priority and feeling like, you know, what you're doing is important for yourself. Those can all be good strategies to set a foundation to make some helpful changes. Do you have any closing thoughts on the topic of mental health? Thankfully, it seems like there's more normalizing in today's culture society to talk about mental health and for people to be seeking care and seeking support. But I think there's still stigma and sometimes still difficult for people to feel like they can talk about what's happening psychologically or to reach out for professional help. So I think we just want to continue to promote spaces that there's safety for people to be able to acknowledge and process how they're feeling. And so whether that's in your family, whether that's in your smaller sphere of close friends, work, whatever it might be, just I think the more we can take care of each other as a community and also kind of encourage people to be doing things that they need for themselves or getting help. I think that's all a good pattern in a broader sense. As we're entering the thick of winter, I hope this conversation was helpful for you. Honestly, I think making time to take stock of how you're feeling is a good tip for understanding your mental and physical health in general, and it's something I'll definitely be trying to do more of this year. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed this sort of speed round episode of our show. We'll have more episodes like this in the next few months. A huge thank you to Dr. Sauer for making time to chat about this important subject, and a special thank you to the University Communication and Marketing Department for making It's Probably Not Rocket Science possible. We'll be back every other Tuesday all spring long with new episodes about some really interesting research and projects going on all over UNM, including a new vaccine that could help lower cholesterol and how law school students are helping high schoolers better understand their constitutional rights. We'll be back in two weeks. Bye!